Section seven of Options. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Walsh, Omaha, Nebraska. Options by O. Henry, Buried Treasure. There are many kinds of fools. Now. Where everybody please sit still until they are called upon specifically to rise. I had been every kind of fool except one. I had expended my patrimony, pretended my matrimony, played poker, lawn tennis, and bucket shops, parted soon with my money in many ways. But there remained one rule of the wearer of Kappa Bells that I had not played. That was the seeker after buried treasure. To few does the delectable viewer come, but of all the would-be followers in the hoofprints of King Midas, none has found the pursuit so rich in pleasurable promise. But going back from a theme a while, as lampens must do, I was a fool of the sentimental sort. I saw May Martha Mangum; it was hers. She was eighteen, the color of the white ivory keys of a new piano. Beautiful, and possessed by the exquisite solemnity and pathetic witchery of an unsophisticated angel, doomed to live in a small, dull Texas prairie town, she had a spirit and charm that could have enabled her to pluck rubies like raspberries from the crown of Belgium or any other sporty kingdom. But she did not know it, and I did not paint the picture for her. You see, I wanted May Martha Mangum for to have and to hold. I wanted her to abide with me, and put my slippers and pipe away every day in places where they cannot be found of evenings. May Martha's father was a man hidden behind whiskers and spectacles. He lived for bugs and butterflies and all insects that fly or crawl or buzz or get down your back or in the butter. He was an etymologist, or words to that effect. He spent his life. Sending the air for flying fish of the Junebug order, and then sticking pens to them and calling them names. He and May Martha were the whole family. He prized her highly as a fine specimen of the Rosibus humanus, because she saw that he had food at times, and put his clothes on the right side before, and kept his alcohol bottles filled. Scientists, they say, are apt to be absent-minded. There was another besides myself who thought May Martha Mangum one to be desired. That was Goodlow Banks, a young man just home from college. He had all the attainments to be found in books—Latin, Greek, philosophy, and especially the higher branches of mathematics and logic. If he hadn't been for his habit of pouring out his information and learning on every one that he addressed, I'd have liked him pretty well. But. Even as it was, he and I were, you would have thought, great pals. We got together every time we could, because each of us wanted to pump the other for whatever straws we could find, which way the wind blew, from the heart of May Martha Mangum. Rather a mixed metaphor. Goodlow Banks would never have been guilty of that. That is the way of rivals. You might say that Goodlow. Ran to books, manners, 
culture, growing intellect, and clothes. I would have put you in mind more of baseball and Friday night debating societies by way of culture, and maybe of a good horseback rider. But in our talks together, and in our visits and conversation with May Martha, neither Goodloe Banks nor I could find out which one of us she preferred. May Martha was a natural-born non-committal, and knew in her cradle how to keep people guessing. As I said, old man Mangum was absent-minded. After a long time, he found out one day one little butterfly must have told him that two young men were trying to throw a net over the head of the young person, a daughter or some such technical appendage, who looked after his comforts. I never knew scientists could rise to such occasions. Old Mangum already labeled and classified Goodloe and myself easily among the lowest orders of the vertebrates, and in English, too, without going any further into Latin than the simple reference to Orgatorix rex helvetii, which is as far as I ever went myself. And he told us that if he ever caught us around this house again, he would add us to his collection. Goodloe Banks and I remained away five days, expecting the storm to subside. When we dared to call at the house again, May Martha Mangum and her father were gone. Gone! The house they had rented was closed. Their little store of goods and chattels was gone also. And not a word of farewell to either of us from May Martha. Not a white fluttering note painted the hornthorn bush, not a chalk mark on the gatepost, nor a postcard in the post office to give us a clue. For two months, Goodloe Banks and I separately tried every scheme we could think of to track the runaways. We used our friendship and influence with a ticket agent, with liver stablemen, railroad conductors, and our lone lorn constable, but without results. Then we became better friends and worse enemies than ever. We foregathered in the back room of Snyder's saloon every afternoon after work, and played dominoes and laid conversational traps to find out from each other if anything had been discovered. That is the way of rivals. Now Goodloe Banks had a sarcastic way of displaying his own learning and putting me in the class that was reading, purging Ray, her brother's dad, she cannot play. Well, I rather liked Goodloe, and I had a contempt for his college learning, and I was always regarded as good-natured, so I kept my temper. And I was trying to find out if he knew anything about my Martha, so I endured his society. In talking things over one afternoon, he said to me, Suppose you do find her, Ed, whereby would you profit? Miss Mangum has a mind. Perhaps it is yet uncultured, but she is destined for higher things than she could give her. I have talked with no one who seemed to appreciate more the enchantment of the ancient poets and writers and the modern cults that have assimilated and expanded their philosophy of life. Don't you think you are wasting your time looking for her? My idea, said I, of a happy home is that eight-room house in a grove of live oaks by the side of a charcoal on a Texas prairie. A piano, I went on, with an automatic player in the sitting room, 
three thousand head of cattle under fence for a starter, a buckboard, and ponies always hitched at a post for the missus, and may Martha Mangum to spend the profits of the ranch as she pleases, and to abide with me, and put my slippers and pipe away every day in places where they cannot be found of evenings. That, said I, is what is to be, and a fig, a dried Smyrna, Dago stand fig, for your curriculums, cults, and philosophy. She is meant for higher things, repeated Goodloe Banks. Whatever she is meant for, I answered, just now she is out of pocket, and I shall find her as soon as I can without the aid of colleges. The game is blocked, said Goodloe, putting down a domino, and we had a beer. Shortly after that, a young farmer whom I knew came into town and brought me a folded blue paper. He said his grandfather had just died. I concealed a tear, and he went on to say that the old man had jealously guarded this paper for twenty years. He left it to his family as part of his estate, the rest of which consisted of two mules and hypotenuse of non-arable land. The sheet of paper was of the old blue kind used during the rebellion of the abortionists against the secessionists. It was dated June 14, 1863, and it described the hiding place of ten borrowers of gold and silver coin valued at $300,000. Old Randall, grandfather of his grandson Sam, was given the information by a Spanish priest who was in on the treasure bearing, and who died many years before. No, afterward, in old Rondo's house. Old Rondo's wrote it down from dictation. Why didn't your father look this up? I asked young Rondo. He went blind before he could do so, he replied. Why didn't you hunt for it yourself? I asked. Well, said he, I've only known about the paper for ten years. First there was the spring plowing to do, and then chopping the weeds out of the corn, and then come taking fodder. And mighty soon, winter was on us. It seemed to run along that way, year after year. That sounded perfectly reasonable to me, so I took it up with young Lee Rondo at once. The directions on the paper were simple. The whole borough cavalcade, laden with the treasure, started from an old Spanish mission in Dolores County. They traveled due south by the compass until they reached the Elemental River. They frauded this, and buried the treasure on the top of a little mountain, shaped like a pack-saddle, standing in a row between two higher ones. A heap of stones marked the place of the buried treasure. All the party, except the Spanish priest, were killed by Indians a few days later. The secret was a monopoly. It looked good to me. Lee Rondo suggested that we rig out a camping outfit, hire a surveyor to run out the line from the Spanish mission, and then spend $300,000 seeing the sites in Fort Worth. But, without being highly educated, I knew a way to save time and expense. We went to the state land office and had a practical, what they call a working sketch, made of all the surveys of land from the old mission to the elemental river. On this map, I drew a line due southward to the river. The length of lines of each survey and section of land was accurately given on the sketch. 
By these we found a point on the river and had a connection made with it, and an important, well-identified corner of the Los Animos Five League Survey, a grant made by King Philip of Spain. By doing this, we did not need to have the line run out by a surveyor. It was a great saving of expense and time. So, Li Rondo and I fitted out a two-horse wagon team with all the, the accessories and drove a hundred and forty-nine miles to Chico, the nearest town to the point we wished to reach. There, we picked up a deputy county surveyor. He found the corner of the Los Animos survey for us ran out the 5,720 varas west that our sketch called for, lit a stone on the spot, had coffee and bacon, and called the mail stage back to Chico. I was pretty sure that we would get at $300,000. Lee Rondos was to be only one-third, because I was paying all the expenses. With that $200,000, I knew I could find May Martha Mangum if she was on earth, and with it I could flutter the butterflies in old man Mangum's dovecote, too, if I could find that treasure. But Lee and I established camp. Across the river were a dozen little mountains densely covered by cedar brakes, but not one shaped like a pack saddle. That did not deter us. Appearances are deceptive. A pack saddle, like beauty, may exist only in the eye of the beholder. I and the grandson of the treasure examined those cedar-covered hills with the care of a lady hunting for the wicked flea. We explored every side, top, circumference, mean elevation, angle, slope, and concavity of every one for two miles up and down the river. We spent four days doing so. Then we hatched up the room and the dun, and hauled the remains of the coffee and bacon the 149 miles back to Concho City. Lee Rondo chewed too much tobacco on the return trip. I was busy driving because I was in a hurry. As shortly as could be after our empty return, Goodloe Banks and I foregathered in the back room of Snyder's saloon to play dominoes and fish for the information. I told Goodloe about my expedition after the buried treasure. If I could have found that $300,000, I said to him, I could have scoured and sifted the surface of the earth to find my Martha Mangum. She is meant for higher things, said Goodloe. I shall find her myself. But tell me how you went about discovering the spot where this unearthed increment was imprudently buried. I told him in the smallest detail. I showed him the draftsman's sketch, with the distances marked plainly upon it. After glancing over it in a masterly way, he leaned back in his chair and bestowed upon me an explosion of sardonic, superior, and collegiate humor. Well, you are a fool, Jim, he said, when he could speak. It's your play, said I, patiently fingering my double-six. Twenty, said Goodloe, making two crosses on the table with his chalk. Why am I a fool? I asked. Buried treasure has been found before in many places. Because, said he, 
in calculating the point on the river where your line would strike, you neglected to allow for the variation. The variation there would be nine degrees west. Let me have your pencil. Goodloe Banks figured rapidly on the back of an envelope. The distance from north to south of the line run from the Spanish mission, said he, is exactly twenty-two miles. It was run by a pocket compass, according to your story. Allowing for the variation, the point on the elemental river where you should have searched for your treasure is exactly six miles and nine hundred and forty-five farras farther west than the place you hit upon. Oh, what a fool you are, Jim. What is this variation that you speak of? I asked. I thought figures never lied. The variation of the magnetic compass, said Goodloe, from the true meridian. He smiled in his superior way, and then I saw come out in his face the singular, eager, consuming cupidity of the seeker after buried treasure. Sometimes, he said with the air of the oracle, these old traditions of hidden money are not without foundation. Suppose you let me look over that paper describing the location. Perhaps together we might. The result was that Goodloe Banks and I, rivals in love, became companions in adventure. We went to Chico by stage from Huntersburg, the nearest railroad town. In Chico, we hired a team drawing a covered spring wagon and camping paraphernalia. We had the same surveyor run out our distance, as revised by Goodloe and his variations, and then dismissed him and sent him on his homeward road. It was night when we arrived. I fed the horses and made a fire near the bank of the river, and cooked supper. Goodloe would have helped, but his education had not fitted him for practical things. But while I worked, he cheered me with the expression of some great thoughts handed down from the dead ones of old. He quoted some translations from the Greek at much length. And a crayon, he explained. That was a favorite passage with Miss Magum, as I recited it. She is meant for higher things, said I, repeating his phrase. Can there be anything higher, asked Goodloe, than to dwell in the society of the classics, to live in the atmosphere of learning and culture? You have often decried education. What of your wasted efforts through your ignorance of simple mathematics? How soon would you have found your treasure if my knowledge had not shown you your error? We'll take a look at those hills across the river first, said I, and see what we find. I am still doubtful about variations. I have been brought up to believe that the needle is true to the pole. The next morning was a bright June one. We were up early and had breakfast. Goodloe was charmed. He recited Keats, I think it was, and Kelly or Shelley, while I broiled the bacon. We were getting ready to cross the river, which was little more than a shallow creek there, and explore the many sharp-peaked cedar-covered hills on the other side. My good Ulysses, said Goodloe, slapping me on the shoulder while I was washing the ten breakfast plates. Let me see the enchanted document once more. I believe it gives directions for climbing the hill shaped like a pack saddle. I never saw a pack saddle. What is it like, Jim? 
Score one against culture, said I. I'll know it when I see it. Goodloe was looking at old Brundle's document when he ripped out a most uncollegiate swear word. Come here, he said, holding the paper up against the sunlight. Look at that, he said, laying his finger against it. On the blue paper, a thing I had never noticed before, I saw stand out in white letters the word and figures. Malvern, 1898. What about it? I asked. It's the watermark, said Goodloe. The paper was manufactured in 1898. The writing on the paper is dated 1863. This is a palpable fraud. Oh, I don't know, said I. The rondos are pretty reliable, plain, uneducated country people. Maybe the paper manufacturers try to perpetuate the swindle. And then Goodloe Banks went as wild as his education permitted. He dropped the glasses off his nose and glared at me. I've often told you you were a fool, he said. You have let yourself be imposed upon by a clodhopper, as you have imposed upon me. How? I asked. Have I imposed upon you? By your ignorance, said he. Twice I have discovered serious flaws in your plans that a common school education should have enabled you to avoid. And, he continued, I have been put to expense that I could ill afford in pursuing this swindling quest. I am done with it. I rose and pointed a large pewter spoon at him, fresh from the dishwater. Good low banks, I said. I cannot one parboiled navy being for education. I always barely tolerated it in anyone, and I despised it in you. What has your learning done for you? It is a curse to yourself and a bore to your friends. Away, I said. Away with your watermarks and variations. They are nothing to me. They shall not deflect me from the quest. I pointed with my spoon across the river to a small mountain shaped like a pack saddle. I am going to search that mountain, I went on, for the treasure. Decide now whether you are in it or not. If you wish to let a watermark or variation shake your soul, you are no true adventurer. Decide. A white cloud of dust began to rise far down the river road. It was the mail wagon from Hesperus to Chico. Goodlow flagged it. I am done with the swindle, said he. Sorry, no one but a fool would pay any attention to that paper now. Well, you always were a fool, Jim. I leave you to your fate. He gathered his personal traps, climbed into the mail wagon, adjusted his glasses nervously, and flew away in a cloud of dust. After I had washed the dishes and staked the horses on new grass, I crossed the shallow river and made my way slowly through the cedar bricks up to the top of the hill shaped like a pack saddle. It was a wonderful June day. Never in my life had I seen so many birds, so many butterflies, dragonflies, grasshoppers, and such winged and stained beasts of the air and fields. I investigated the hill shaped like a pack saddle from base to summit. I found an absolute absence of signs relating to buried treasure. There was no pile of stones, no ancient blazes on the trees, none of the evidences of the three hundred thousand dollars, 
as set forth in the document of old man rondo i came down the hill in the cool of the afternoon suddenly out of the cedar brake i stepped into a beautiful green valley where a tributary small stream ran into the elemental river and there i was startled to see what i took to be a wild man with unkempt beard and ragged hair pursuing a giant butterfly with brilliant wings perhaps he is an escaped madman i thought i wondered how he has strayed so far from seats of education and learning and then i took a few more steps and saw a vine-covered cottage near the small stream and in the little grassy glade i saw may martha mangum plucking wild flowers she straightened up and looked at me for the first time since i knew her i saw her face which was the color of the white keys of a new piano turn pink i walked toward her without a word she let the gathered flowers trickle slowly from her hand to the grass i knew you would come jim she said clearly father wouldn't let me write but i knew you would come what followed you may guess there was my wagon and team just across the river i've often wondered what good too much education is to a man if he can't use it for himself if all the benefits of it are to go to others where does it come in for may martha mangum abides with me there is an eight-room house in the live oak grove and a piano with an automatic player and a good start toward the three thousand head of cattle is under fence and when i ride home at night my pipe and slippers are put away in places where they cannot be found but who cares for that who cares who cares end of buried treasure recording by aaron walsh in omaha nebraska